Let's read God's word together, found in Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. invite you to keep those Bibles open as we look together at this passage, and let's pray that the Lord would meet us in this time. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that because of your grace, we are able to hear your word. And so, Lord, I pray uh, as we look into the scriptures this morning your spirit would be applying your grace to our hearts that we might hear and see you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this fall we are looking at selections from the four Gospels in order to take a closer look at the heart of Jesus, to meditate on, to reflect on how Jesus loves us by looking at how he loves others in the way that he treats and interacts with them. And so far we've looked at stories of people who have sought Jesus out on a particular occasion. The leper who came to him looking for cleansing or Nicodemus who came to him uh, to give him a chance to explain himself. Or as we saw last week, the paralyzed man who's Friends brought him for healing. And today now we're looking at a story of Jesus and his interaction with his disciples, with those, that close band of brothers that were with him all of the time. If you're not familiar with the story of Jesus in the Gospels, it's helpful to know that part of his strategy for uh, bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth was to gather this close band of followers, these 12 men whom he personally selected and called to follow him, to be with him, uh, to learn from him, to observe everything that he taught, and then to be sent out in order to proclaim that message as witnesses of his kingdom. And so, unlike the people that we've met the last several weeks, who had a single remarkable encounter with Jesus... The disciples that we're looking at this morning were with Jesus all of the time. They ate with him, they traveled with him, they heard every sermon, they saw virtually every miracle. But that doesn't mean that they knew him any better. Often in the Gospels, the faith of 
the marginal characters, the marginal figures, those who kind of come on and off the page in a single story, often their faith is set up in contrast to the lack of faith that you find in the disciples, which is interesting and and ought to be perhaps a bit unsettling for those of us who read our Bibles often or who go to church regularly or who spend a who've been around Christianity our whole lives, that just because you spend a lot of time around Jesus doesn't mean that you see him clearly or even know him truly. Sometimes Jesus has to disrupt our worlds to make himself known, to help us realize who he really is. And and as dislocating and as terrifying as that can be, Jesus does that out of his love. He does that out of his love. It's a a disruptive love, if you will, because he loves us too much to leave us where we're at in our unbelief. So he makes space for us through the trials of this world to realize who he really is. And that's what we see in our story this morning in Mark chapter 4, the disruptive love of Jesus. And so if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not still there, uh, please uh, turn there with me or scroll or, or, or whatever uh, format you're looking at the Word of God. Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41. After the story that we looked at last week, which came at the beginning of chapter 2, Mark has been following Jesus's ministry, how he called his disciples how he continued to preach and to teach and to work miracles, and how he found himself involved in no small controversies with the religious leaders of the day, those who were opposing him and and who were threatened by him and who already, by the beginning of chapter 3, are making plans to get rid of Jesus. We've been following, Mark follows Jesus along, and as he comes into chapter 4, most of chapter 4 it contains Jesus' teaching specifically uh, on the parables, uh, several of his parables, which was one of the ways that he would get his word across. And as Jesus is teaching, there's so many crowds that, that at the beginning of chapter 4, in order to avoid getting crushed, they end up going out into a boat and just kind of coming off the shore a little bit. And everyone's gathered around on the shore, and Jesus is teaching from the boat. And he teaches these parables, and, and verse 35, our passage, brings, brings us to the end of that day of teaching as Jesus kind of pulls back from the crowd, and the scene now narrows down on just him and his disciples. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it's Time to go. Rather than trying to push their way through the crowd, they just cast off. They set sail. The easiest way is is to to move to the other side of the lake. But as we're going to see, this ends up being no pleasure cruise. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the Sea of Galilee even to this day, is known for its sudden, violent squalls. Uh, One author describes the sea lies 
nearly 700 feet below sea level in a basin surrounded by hills and mountains that are especially precipitous on the east side. And then 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, which raises to uh, 9,200 feet above sea level. And you have this interchange between the cold air, uh, cold upper air from Mount Hermon and the warm air rising from the sea that produces these tempestuous weather conditions for which this lake is famous. Now, I've never been out at sea during a violent storm. I don't feel like I want to be out at sea. I've seen deadliest catch. That's good enough for me. Um, but I can't imagine that there would be few things uh, more terrifying than that, right? I mean, they are understandably afraid as this boat hits this storm and begins already in just a short amount of time filling with water from the waves crashing over the edge. But perhaps the most startling part of this story, the most unexpected part, is what we read in verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Think about that. That makes no sense on so many levels. This horrible, violent... One, how can you sleep through a storm? I mean, that's the first question. But second, why would you sleep through a storm like that? What One that's so great that it threatens the lives of everyone out there on that sea. What is Jesus doing? Why sleep instead of jumping in and helping out? And his disciples seem to be asking that exact same question. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Why don't you grab a bucket and start bailing like the rest of us? It's really surprising to see Jesus act that way. But Jesus often surprises us, right? He doesn't always do what we think he'll do based on what we know of the circumstances. We did not expect him to actually touch a leper when he healed him. We didn't expect him to not answer the questions of a religious leader who came trying to figure him out. We didn't expect him to pronounce the forgiveness of sins over a man who simply wanted to walk. And so in our story, we don't expect him to be sleeping through a storm when his close friends are completely freaking out. But as we've seen so far uh, in these stories, it's often in his surprising behavior that we see his love revealed. It's the stuff we don't expect that catches us off guard, that forces us to slow down and say, why is he doing that instead of this? How does that reveal his love to us? Why take a nap during one of the most traumatic experiences of your close friends' lives, one in which they're pretty sure they're about to die? I mean, do you not care that we are perishing? That's a strong word. That's the same word that's used in John 3.16 when it says, we shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a big word there. They are convinced that this is the end and Jesus apparently doesn't care. Why? You know, what, what, what does he think his actions would communicate in that moment? 
you know, they're, they're terrifying at, at death's door and he's sleeping. I mean, what does that communicate? A calloused indifference? That's what the disciples were picking up. I mean, that's what the sailors thought of Jonah when something similar happened on the Mediterranean Sea some 700 years before this story. There, there are a lot of interesting parallels between this story and uh, the story of Jonah. A violent storm, a, a crew that freaks out a sleeping prophet. But there are also some important differences. Jonah was fleeing from the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Jonah uh, slept for indifference. Jesus sleeps for complete trust in his Father. For the storm to stop, the crew had to throw Jonah overboard. For this storm to stop, all Jesus has to do is say the word. So there are some important differences. And and to really understand why Jesus sleeps and what that reveals about him, that that it reveals not a calloused indifference to his friends, but actually his divine love for them, to see that We really have to look at the rest of the story and how that unfolds, what he actually accomplishes through something so simple and surprising as taking a nap. So verse 39, first Jesus says something to the sea, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So notice how the great storm at the beginning of the story is now replaced by a great calm, just at Jesus' word. And then he says something to his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples who spent every waking hour with Jesus should have known better than to freak out. There's something that's not clicking for them in their time with Jesus. And you see what that is in verse 41 as the disciples say something to each other. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They don't understand who Jesus is. They're shocked. They're terrified by the power that they've just witnessed. And so notice how the great storm that was replaced by the great calm is now overtaken by a great fear. They fear Jesus. They're overwhelmed with both awe and terror that their teacher, their rabbi, has the power and authority to command the sea. I mean, think about what they're trying to take on board in that moment as they process what they've just seen. There's only one person in Israel's faith, according to Israel's scripture, the Old Testament, who has the power and authority to command the sea. The sea that was often a metaphor for evil and chaos for Israel. There's only one voice that could calm it or control it. The same voice that created it. Only the voice of God. 
So Nahum chapter 1, God's way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Or Psalm 107, which Doran prayed earlier. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Or Psalm 65, by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the one who by his strength established the mountains, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Only God himself has the power and authority to do what Jesus did in that boat. And so when his disciples witness that, they react in the only possible way. They stand in awe of his signs, as Psalm 65 puts it. They become afraid, more afraid of their teacher than they were of the storm that just about killed them. They fear a great fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's something that hadn't clicked yet for the disciples. Despite all the time they spent with Jesus, they still didn't understand who he was. That if they had him, they didn't have to be afraid of the storm. That if they had him, they have one who is greater than any storm. So they need only trust him. That's what was missing. Have you still no faith? They need only trust him because he is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. They needed faith. And so, Jesus in his love doesn't leave them where they're at in their unbelief. He makes space for them to come to that realization that they still don't get who he is. And so he takes a nap. He takes a nap at the worst possible time ever. He was unwilling to leave them where they were in their unbelief, and so he left them in the storm for a bit. He disrupted their world, shattered their categories, so so that they might wake up to the true identity of who he is. And that they might believe. And he often loves us in a similar way. Because we too, I mean, regardless of how much time we spend around Jesus, can so easily forget or fail to recognize that he is no mere teacher. Like the disciples, we can get so focused on the terrifying circumstances around us that we miss the presence of the Creator among us. Without turning this story into a mere analogy or metaphor, we can see ourselves in it pretty easily. 
we so often do the same thing. We think God is asleep. I mean, how else do you explain our world falling apart? Maybe we're drowning in bills. Or we're drifting relationally from our spouse or from a close friend or from our kids. Our mortgage is underwater. Our business sinks. Our bodies are racked by wave after wave of sickness and disease and the effects of age. And we feel suffocated by depression. We're barely keeping our nose above water. And and we wonder why Jesus just can't wake up, grab a bucket, and help us out. But what if we're asking him for too little? What if we're treating him as too small? What if he loves us too much to leave us in our unbelief and our small view of him, and so he's leaving us in our trouble or in our trial in order to create space for that little faith to be exposed and then expanded? Preparing us to pay attention for when he does something only God can do. I remember a few months after Carissa and I moved to Wheaton for grad school. um, We had planned, so we thought, but we were a few months in and pretty much had run out of money. (laughs) Uh, We had some savings for the first few months and I had a job lined up, but for various reasons that job wasn't going to generate a paycheck for a couple more months. Uh, We didn't expect that. And so we found ourselves with a deadline and no money for the rent, which was due the next day. So I remember saying to her, um, as we were getting ready for bed, we need to pray for a miracle. We need $1,000 tomorrow. That's what I said. We went to bed. The next day, we found a card in our mail. Some of our friends back in Nebraska, who'd been part of the ministry that we were involved in, they'd been hanging out. And several of them uh, had, independent of one another, felt led to pray for us. So they kind of stopped what they were doing and spent some time praying for us. And through that time of prayer, several of them felt they needed to give something to us. So they took up a collection randomly, having no knowledge of our situation, put a check in the mail the the next day, which days before we knew we even had a problem... And all of a sudden, in the next day, we get a check for $990 the day that we needed to pay the rent. We think God is asleep. Our world is falling apart. And then he does something only he can do. As if to say to us, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, Now, none of that should trivialize the very real pain that some of our trials bring, that some of us are going through or will go through one day. None of that should minimize the the understandable fear that we experience when our world falls apart. But it should remind us, in fact, it must remind us that there is more to the story than our circumstances. There's always more to the story than what we're experiencing, what we can see and understand in this moment. 
the persistence of our troubles is not evidence of God's indifference or impotence. In fact, it might be evidence of his love. As he graciously and patiently makes space for us to realize how little our faith has been, to expose it and replace it with a confidence and a trust in a God who is greater than our circumstances. And that applies to us whether we are trying to figure Jesus out, whether we've walked with him for a lifetime, it applies to us as a church and the mission God's given us. If, you know, for those of us who are pursuing Christ, we're just trying to get right with God, trying to figure him out, we think that because we got ourselves into this mess, we're the ones who have to bail ourselves out. It's, it was my mistakes, my sin, now I've got to I've got to solve this. I've got to fix it. And so we treat everything that we do for God, our prayers or going to church or showing kindness, is one more bucket that, we're, that we've thrown out to bail as, as sin floods our boat. And we think that each little act is another bucket, another, and we're that much closer to saving ourselves. And it would be really nice if Jesus could pick up a bucket and join us. That's what we want from him. We want help so that we can save ourselves. But that's not who Jesus is. And that's not what salvation is. It's not Jesus helping us figure our lives out or save ourselves. It's Jesus coming in, destroying our lives, blowing them up, the sinful life that we give ourselves to, so that he might replace it with something new and better, something that lasts forever. He doesn't help us save ourselves. He does all of the saving work. That's what his life, his death, and his resurrection were all about. And he's not asking you, therefore, get busy. He's saying, therefore, trust me. Trust me. Believe in me. I'm so much bigger than your sin. And you're so much smaller than you think you are. Let me save you. This applies as we seek to follow Christ amid the frustrating circumstances of our fallen world. Life doesn't always go as we think it should. We know that. We wrestle with financial trials. We wrestle with health problems. We wrestle with relational trouble, with emotional trauma, with job stress, with family worries, with fighting against sin and temptation that can just trip us up. And, and again, the temptation is to think, well, I've, I've got to do this somehow myself. I've got to, and, and wouldn't it be nice if Jesus would help? When we forget that the God who promises to make all things new in the end, the new creation when Christ returns, that God is with us right now, not to help us bail ourselves out, That God is able to save us from our trouble, not by picking up a bucket, but by telling our trouble to go jump in a lake. That's his power. Now, of course, sometimes that deliverance that we want and long for waits till the end. Sometimes we wait. God's the one who determines that. It's his will. But if you're anything like me, 
Sometimes I defer to God's will, not out of humility or deference, but because I'm afraid, I'm afraid to pray something actually big, or I don't believe he'll actually answer. And so if God, will, if God wills it, that becomes my little escape clause for my little faith. Just being honest. That's what I do. And of course, yes, we have to defer to God's will. There's always a bigger story, a bigger plan. But don't let, if God wills it, become a thin veil to hide our unbelief. He's so much bigger. He's so much bigger. The God who spoke this world into being, who commands the destiny of every living soul, who accomplished redemption for all through the cross and resurrection of his son, that God is present with us by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Do we believe that? Do our prayers reflect that? He has the power and authority right now to deliver us and accomplish his plan. The great hymn reminds us the waves and the wind still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. So will we trust him to do things that only God can do? Can God raise, can, can the God who raises the dead raise a dead marriage? Do I believe God's capable of doing that? Can he bring healing where the doctors say it's hopeless? Can the creator of this universe create in my heart a desire to love him more than I love sin? Do I believe that's possible? How big is the God that we serve? And what will it take for us to see that? What will it take for us to see that? Sometimes he has to disrupt our world to get us to see that. And if you're experiencing that kind of disruption right now, perhaps God is inviting you into a bigger faith. And this applies not, to, not just to our personal lives, not just to, to finding Jesus or following Jesus. It applies to our vision and calling as a church as well. Do we really believe that Jesus has the authority and the power to change hearts throughout Metro West Boston, and in every corner of the globe, so that his name will be treasured above all things. Do we believe that? Is God big enough to do that? Amen. Come on. He is. But, but I mean, so often things like that could just become a, little, a, a pretty statement on a piece of paper, but not an active part of our faith. And so do we trust God to do the impossible, to change hearts by his grace and to use us to do that we need to redouble our efforts in prayer for the vision god's given us that his name would be treasured this vision's not about westgate it's christ treasured above all things his is the reputation we're concerned about and committed to to redouble our prayers that god would use us and redouble our prayers for the local outreach team that's, that's working on this as they round the corner into the final stretch of the work they've been tasked to do. We're about to embark on an exciting new season of gospel ministry as a church. 
Is our faith ready for that? Are we believing God to do something new, to change lives through His Word? And as we trust Him, we need to keep our eyes and our faith on God, not on the circumstances of the world around us, the cultural storms that that seem to be overwhelming and flooding our homes and even our churches. It's easy to panic when you see how messed up the world is and how much worse it seems to be getting. It's really easy to panic, to respond by either circling our wagons or withdrawing from the public square, even to be frustrated as though Jesus is sleeping and all, you know, and he's letting his guard down. And and we need to be alert of what's happening in the world. We need to guard sound doctrine. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. But what's needed in moments like this is not to recoil at the world or to, or to retreat from it, but to step out in love with the hope of the gospel for a world who needs the grace of Jesus every bit as much as we do. And in stepping out in love and holding the gospel out for others, we need to be willing to follow Christ's example of disruptive love, of allowing space for God to rock the worlds of people that we love, that they might come to grips with who he really is. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't say that that's the default position of our gospel outreach, just giving space. You know, The default position, I think, when we look at the love of the Lord and the example of the early church in the words of Scripture is to get our hands dirty in caring for others, loving our neighbors as ourselves, laying our lives down in love and service. As Micah puts it, to, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. That should be our default position or action. But sometimes, for some people there does come a point where what they need is not help, but space. Space to wrestle honestly, space to freak out, space to come to the ends of themselves, space to realize that God's the only one who can get them out of this mess. Space to finally see how big God is. That he's not the kind of God who's there to help us dig ourselves out. But he's the God who commands all creation, deserves all allegiance, who alone can save and has in fact accomplished that salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And he's done that for us. For us. So who are we putting our faith in? Who are you putting your faith in? Yourself or Jesus? And what are we trusting him for? Are we trusting him to help me get myself out? Or to show himself as the true savior and king of the world? And that's a question for all of us. It's a question for all of us whether... We're new to Christianity, or we don't even know Jesus yet, or, or we've been around 
uh, Christianity and, and Christ our whole lives? That's a question for all of us. Just because we're around Jesus a lot doesn't mean we always see who he is. So who is he and who are we trusting him to be? And where our faith is lacking. Praise God that he loves us too much to leave us in our unbelief. But instead is willing to disrupt our worlds. To get our attention. To show us who he is. May he be pleased to use whatever trials or storms in our life are necessary to open our eyes or the eyes of those we love to who he really is. To fresh faith in Jesus. And as he does among us what only God can do, may we respond with awe and fear and faith. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have such a small view of you. Lord, for so many of us, the the default of our hearts is that, that you are a religious activity to be managed. God, forgive us. Forgive us for our small view and and make yourself known to us in big ways, Lord. Open our eyes, startle us if necessary, that we might see who you truly are and that we might recognize that you are greater to be feared than any trouble this world presents. And Lord, in that, May our faith grow such that we expect you to do things only God can do. May we trust you in our personal lives. May we trust you in our ministry as a church to be and to do what only you can do. Grow our faith, Lord. Grow our faith for the the sake of your name. And it's your name in which we pray. Amen.